Well, if you haven't already, I'd ask that you would grab uh, your Bible this morning and turn to the book of 1 John. And uh, I know some of you have come uh, looking forward to a good Mother's Day message. And uh, I'm sorry to dis- disappoint, but what we usually do with holidays uh, is to take a every other year approach. And uh, last year, uh, we uh, invested on Mother's Day talking about uh, the great role that moms play and uh, the role of parents uh, in regards to raising up children. And so uh, if you're looking for a Mother's Day message, uh, you can go to the website and uh, pull up last year's and, uh, and be blessed. Um, now, there are some times that this works out really well, and I think this year it does, and there are other times it doesn't work out so well. Uh, I've noticed the last, uh, I guess not the last time we did baby dedications, but uh, the last two times before that, my subject matter had to do surrounding the wrath of God. And there's nothing like kissing babies and uh, dedicating them to the Lord, and then the preacher gets up, and the bald big preacher gets up and talks about how wrathful and judgeful God is. But uh, today we talk on the subject of uh, God's blessed assurance. And if there's anything that I would love to give uh, to mothers today uh, is assurance. I've grown up with a mom and uh, I live with a mom now. And I think that probably moms more than anyone struggle with the question, am I doing a good job? I know my mom asked that question many a times on her way to the principal's office. I wonder why she got into so much trouble. But anyway, um, I'm sure the question runs through your minds as moms. Am I doing all that I can? Are my children going to turn out the way that I hope and pray uh, that they would? And There's a lot of doubts on whether or not uh, you've accomplished all that God wants you to. The hours that are spent, the... the just years of dedication, uh, wondering, uh, is all that I'm doing worth it? Well, it's not just moms that struggle with this, but all of us as Christians, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, have struggled with these questions, not when it comes to the issue of your family or your work, but when it comes to your Christian life. And today we want to continue in this series out of the book of 1 John, which is found at the end of the New Testament, where John is giving a letter of assurance. Five chapters in our translation of assurance. Now, we've been talking over and over again that this is a challenging book, and that the theme of this verse is the following in 1 John 5, 13 and 14. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, other translations say that you may be assured that you have eternal life. Are you assured this morning that you have eternal life? For some, the reason why this book is so challenging is because you have never come to a a firm understanding of that question. You don't find confidence, you don't find assurance in your walk with God because there is no walk with God. And yet here John over and over again challenges us because he wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt that we are the children of God. But to do that we must pass and what he does is goes over three tests over and over again. In fact, we're in the second installment 
of looking at those three tests once again. And yet during those tests, it can challenge our hearts. And right when we begin to feel like, I'm not a believer, I fail these tests, this great aged apostle shows his love and affection. He does this back just for a moment, turn to 1 John chapter 2 and verses 12 through 14. As a way of review, it seems that right when we begin to start questioning whether we are saved or not, he assures us, he encourages us, and he does it starting in verse 12 where he speaks about them as dear children. Then he speaks to the spiritual fathers and young men. And he goes back and he says, I want you to know these things because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Because you've known him from the beginning. Because you've overcome the evil one. He goes on to say, because you've known the Father. Because you've known him who is from the beginning. Because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Just like some weeks ago when we looked at that passage, once again we come to a text where John wants to affirm a level of assurance in our mind. When we think of the word assurance, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you are reminded of the song, Blessed Assurance. A young blind woman named Fanny Crosby wrote those words after a friend of hers was just kind of playing on the piano. She says, what does that sound like? And Fanny Crosby said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What an incredible uh, word and hymn uh, that we sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Can you say that this morning? Can you say without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is mine? Or just as my title says, blessed assurance, is Jesus mine? Is there some doubt in your mind this morning? That though you're involved in a, in a Sunday encounter with Jesus, though you may be a part of a church, though you may have grown up in a Christian home, that when you are asked that question, is Jesus mine? There's no firm answer. Now for some of you, you will go back to the time where you profess Christ. And, and I will contend this morning that John's whole writing is that the faith in Jesus Christ is not merely just a profession, but a practice that lives itself out in righteousness. So brothers and sisters, beware that if the reason why you say blessed assurance Jesus is mine is because one Sunday you got pretty excited about Jesus and, and made a decision for Christ, and yet you look at your life and you don't see any major change from the moment you came to know Christ and before it to the point now afterwards, then I think that question mark should stay. But what about those who find themselves accepted by God and trying to live an upright and holy life, but find themselves sinning. John wants us to know over and over again that be assured, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior and you live in light of that truth, you're a child of His. And so we want to learn this morning how we can know that Jesus is ours. There's no greater thing in this world than assurance, I believe. Assurance is something that's different than hope. 
Because hope is something that we put our trust in that we may not see all that well, and yet assurance is something that we establish based on something that we do know. I I have a great assurance uh, that every morning uh, the sun is going to come up. I don't hope that the sun comes up. I have an assurance the sun is going to come up because it's come up every other day in my life. And so it's firm. It's established. And what John wants us to be assured of this morning is that we are in the light, that we are living in the truth. So let us stand as we look at our text this morning and as we dissect and understand how we can know that we have uh, this light within us and this assurance that we need to have as believers. Let's start in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 3, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we uh, let's say this is that uh, let me do that again. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that we that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I pray today that those who are truly your children will walk away with great assurance. Lord, that they will see this assurance not as license to live however they want to, but an assurance that tells them that they are safely in the palm of your Father's hand. Lord, I pray for those who are doubting. Lord, I pray that if those doubts come uh, from feelings or emotion or from the evil one, that you would extinguish those doubts and encourage and build up in each of those lives courage to take on a new day a sense of identity and who they are in you. But Lord, I pray that those that have not trusted you as their Savior, those that are not walking by faith and and living in light of your truth, Lord, I, I pray that there wouldn't be assurance. Lord, I know that that sounds difficult and hard, There's no worse fear in my mind as one of your servants than to give someone a false sense of assurance. To let them leave this place thinking that they can live like they want and have your son too. And think because of that, in the day of judgment, they will stand before you reconciled back to their God and and it not be true. Oh Lord, I pray for those whose hearts condemn them this morning. I pray that you would work by your spirit to challenge their hearts. Lord, that they would not stay in that place of condemnation or guilt, but they would open their arms to Jesus 
the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who endured the cross so that we may stand before you guilt-free, without condemnation, because we are your children whom you have lavished your love upon. Lord, I pray that not a single person would leave this place until they have that assurance that they are your children. So, Lord, we pray for your message to be heard, your message to be proclaimed truthfully and honestly uh, to your people. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. When was the last time you lived with an aspect of doubt? Think about when you've doubted something. For some, we find ourselves doubting almost all the time. We find ourselves like doubting Thomas, saying, I'll believe it when I see it. And yet it seems that doubt is the great contradiction to assurance. When we doubt, we lack the assurance that God will or someone will do what they have said they will do. And yet John starts this passage, and I love how he starts it, because it rings true in my own life of what I want to know and what I want to be sure of. And he starts out in verse 19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. If you call yourself a child of God this morning, there's no doubt in your mind that that should resonate in your hearts this morning. I want to know. I want to know that I belong to the truth. I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that I am in the light. I want to know 100% certainty that I am a child of God. And over and over again, John says, this is how you know. This is how you can be assured. This is why you can be encouraged, brother and sister in Christ. And he says, this is how we know that we are in the truth. Well, how do we know? He says, and it goes back to verse 18. We know when we love not with words or tongue, but we love with actions and in truth. And so we go back to last week's message and we say, how good is my love life? How am I doing at loving those, even those difficult people that I sometimes and many times can't stand? How do I love them? How do I show Christ's sacrificial love to them? John says, live a life of love. And so why does John share this passage? Why then does he go from saying, just say, just do that. Why does he follow up this next verse in verse 19 to say, this is how we know we belong to the truth. Because I believe he is fully aware that his church is struggling with doubt. They doubt. They've seen people go from, uh, from them out to other churches, and they were false teachers, and they had said they had the real relationship with Jesus. They were the ones that had this secret knowledge. They were the ones that seemed to have this close and intimate walk with Jesus. And so when they left, it must have just taken all the air out of that balloon, if you will, 
And they must have felt a sense of deflation. What about us? Do we have a relationship with God? They say they were so smart, they had the secret knowledge of God. What about us? Are we close to God? And John, like a good pastor, encourages his flock. He says, hey, don't let doubt fill your mind. Be assured. Pass the test and be assured of it. Well, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that doubt comes up all the time. Doubts in your heart, in your mind, when you desire to find certitude and certainty, you find yourselves in a fog of doubts. It's true because all throughout Scripture we see believer after believer struggling with it. Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis doubted God's provision of a son that he had promised years before. And they doubted. Even Sarah laughed at the thought that God would fulfill that promise in her old age. They doubted. Moses, the great leader of the people of Israel, doubted the call of God because he had a stuttering problem and didn't think he was all that good at leadership when God called him to lead the children out of Egypt. The minor prophet Habakkuk doubted the justice of God and the fairness of God when he looked at a world that appeared to embrace evil and revile righteousness. Have you done that before? Have you doubted when you've looked at this world and says, how can God be in control? He says he is, but I don't see it. How can all this evil take place? The great John the Baptist even struggled in seeking out the certainty that Jesus Christ really was the Messiah that he sent his disciples to ask if he was. And of course, we know all the disciples doubted because they would have never scattered when Christ was arrested. They would have never run away had there not been doubt that Jesus was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And yet we put all of the spotlight on that doubting Thomas, the Johnny-come-lately, the one who had the guts, I think, to ask the question that everybody was wondering. Is it really Jesus, or are we seeing a ghost? One of the greatest biographies I've ever read is on the pastor, C.H. Spurgeon, And Charles Spurgeon uh, started preaching at the age of, uh, I believe, 16 or 17. And in uh, the middle of the last century, uh, he would lead one of the largest churches over all of the world. The Metropolitan Tabernacle in London would uh, have more than 10,000 people a service. His sermons would be published throughout all the newspapers in the known world. And this great man of faith who would start a college for pastors, who would write books and who would do amazing things, lived his whole life, if you read his journals, in a great time of doubt. How can these great men and women of the faith live with such doubt? If you're truly honest with yourself, you know that doubt wreaks havoc in your life. I know as a pastor, doubt never has left me. It goes over and over again, back to the same things, doubting uh, my place in God's mission, doubting my position even as the preacher uh, that preaches to you. Doubt comes over and over again. And so John, like the good pastor that he is, says, let's look at why you doubt 
and let's address it one at a time. So the first thing we must observe as we look at this idea of assurance and doubt is that we must observe the condemning heart. The condemning heart. The first place John begins is the one who feels condemned. He says, you want to have assurance? You have to begin with those that don't have assurance. And notice what he says in verse 19 and 20. He says, this is then how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now notice what he says in verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us. Notice he doesn't say, if our hearts condemn us. He's not giving it a chance that it may just be something that may take place in the Christian life. He's saying it's going to take place when this happens. And the idea there is that it's not just going to happen once. But it's going to be a time over and over again that you will sense this level of condemnation. It's going to happen. You will doubt. You will have feelings of being condemned. You will not always have the ability to sing with Fanny Crosby, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. But what brings about that doubt? What brings about that lack of assurance? We know, first of all, it comes from subjective feelings. It comes from subjective feelings. What do I mean by that? It comes from you. It's apart from God. It's apart from anything outside of you. It's just you. And it's me. There are times that we don't live up to the expectations that we want, and we feel like a failure. There are some of us who uh, have grown up in strict authoritarian homes, and because of that, we've assumed that if that's how our God is, that any time we mess up, any time that we find ourselves struggling... That like our authoritarian parents, our our God is going to come down like this hard dictator. He's going to beat us up. He's going to tell us, and you keep keep messing up. Fix it. Or I will deal with you in some stern fashion. Some of you are are just plain Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You know, guys like me, Tigger, we don't understand you Eeyores. And you guys just think we're high on drugs, but, uh, but some of you just find yourself like Eeyore. Woe is me. Just upset. The glass is half empty. It's never half full. We have to be careful of these subjective feelings. Because part of it is that some of you just find yourselves, you, you just, you're perfectionists. You just want to do everything right. And so when it doesn't happen, there's this doubt, am I living up the all that I need to be? And these subjective feelings can come from a lot of places. Some of us have subjective feelings and concerns that come uh, because we doubt the claims of Christianity. We start to wonder, after all of this life is done, and I've given my life to this Christianity, to this Jesus, what if it's all a myth? What if it's all a big hoax? What if the writers of the Bible didn't have it right? I love what the Apostle Paul says when he speaks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is no resurrection, we should be pitied above all men. Why? Because we have staked so much of our lives on the hope, on the assurance that Jesus is who he says he is. And so there's no doubt within our lives 
that we're going to question this thing that we've put our hope and our trust in. I will tell you at some of my darker times in life, when, when it seems that I'm tired and overwhelmed, the question will come in, why am I doing all that I am? Does God really care? And if, even if there is a God, now you say, Tim, how can you question God? How can you question the existence of God? I will tell you, it's very easy to do. When God seems far, when he seems distant from me, it's easy for me to ask the questions of doubt. Still others of us uh, don't struggle with, per se, the faith, but you struggle with your position in Christ. You see the sin in your life, and you say, how can some believer sin like I do? You begin to compare your life to others, and you say, I can't live like that. I was reading just uh, this uh, past weekend uh, in regards to uh, some of the holy habits of uh, the reformer John Calvin. John Calvin got up every morning at four in the morning and spent three hours before breakfast reading and praying. You feel pretty sinful, don't you? He would then spend two hours after the morning in what he would call his daily devotions. What did you do the last three hours? In his daily devotions where he would memorize large portions of Scripture. And then he would go and he would then uh, spend time uh, putting together commentaries and, and writing on what he had learned from the Scripture until the end of the night where he would read through a a couple of the psalms that he would say he would go until late hours of the night. John Calvin, boy, he seems like a better Christian than me. I don't hear him talking about watching The Office or or watching a football game. He's reading the Word. And when I compare myself to him, I feel like a sinner. Maybe you feel that way with people that are sitting around you. Maybe you look at the great spiritual disciplines and you say, I struggle with them. I want to pray, but I don't. I want to read my Bible, but it's a big puzzle to me and it makes no sense. And I see others and they're so excited with what they've read in the Bible and I read it and it just is a bunch of nonsense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so you begin to doubt and you say, how can I struggle in all these ways and still have assurance But be careful. Be careful because these feelings we have are not based on anything. They're just a part of our who we are, part of our sinful nature, part of our experience. And so what must we then uh, bring forth to understand this condemnation? I, I want you to write down solid facts. What are the solid facts to this condemnation? Well, others conjure up in their own thinking and logic threats to their assurance, there are some real ones that we have to worry about. First of all, Revelation 12.10 says that we have an enemy who goes before our God daily and accuses the brethren of their sin. And so we have an accuser. If you have ever been accused of something that you have not done, it's easy for you to be assured. But what happens when someone accuses you of something, goes public with something you have done? Is there confidence? Is there assurance? No, there's condemnation and shame. And so the devil isn't accusing us of things that we haven't done. He's saying, look at that Timbidal. Look at all that he says on Sunday. He's preaching you up a storm there, God. 
But look at what he does when nobody's watching. Look at his thoughts. Look at what he says. Look at the jealousy and the anger that he has for others. What are you going to do about that, God? I know that. I know that there's a devil that's accusing me. And I know he's 100% true in his accusations. He knows, he sees, he's aware, and he takes it to my God. And condemnation fills me. The second thing that we have in regards to the solid facts is not only do we have an accuser, but we have sin in our lives. Whether or not the devil is accusing us of those sins, our conscience bears witness that we are sinners. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? I know that. I know that I am deceitfully sick spiritually. And that barring the grace of Almighty God, I stand in condemnation. And that's why so many times as a believer, when I sin, I'm mortified by that. What made, what possessed me to say that? What possessed me to think that? What, what was going on in my life and in my body that would ever have led me to such thinking or action? And so we have to understand that condemnation comes just because we're sinners, And just like our natural biological parents, Adam and Eve, who went running for the hills when they sinned, so does that condemnation come when we sin. We're sinners. We're trespassers. We're murderers. And as a result of that, there's condemnation. But I want you to know condemnation isn't always a bad thing. There are times where condemnation is good because it brings forth fruitful repentance. I want my sons to feel a level of condemnation when they do wrong. I don't want them to sit there long. I don't want them to wallow in that. I don't want them to form their position in that way. But I don't want to take away any of that condemning in their heart because if they do, they will sear their conscience and they will do all sorts of things and they'll never have that seizing of their heart that says, wait a minute, little bit all boy, don't do that because you don't want to feel the way you're going to. And so condemnation in some levels is good. And so listen to what John says. He says in verse uh, 20, whenever our hearts condemn us. Let me ask you this question this morning. Does your heart condemn you? And if your heart is condemning you, is it because of some of the feelings that you have? Is it based on some of your personality? Some of us will condemn ourselves far harder than others will. And those that look at the glass half full say, come on, snap out of it. Quit being so hard on yourself. And yet you sit there and you're broken and you're knocked down and you're defeated. If those are feelings today, it may be very difficult for you to get out of that because that may be who you are, but strive not to find your position or your assurance in what you see of yourself and change it to be what God sees in you. Some of you, my brothers and sisters, struggle with issues of self-image and self-esteem. And because of that, you feel condemned. Because you feel that you don't have the personality that others have, You feel that you're lacking something that God has given to others. Or maybe you look and you say, I'm not as gifted as that individual. And because of that, God must not love me. 
Understand this, God loves his children all the same. And he gives gifts generously. And our job is to go and find them and use them with a humble and contrite heart. So maybe it's feelings. Move beyond that as quickly and as ably as you can. But maybe your condemnation should pause you and should cause you to stop and ask the question, is this condemnation from somewhere else? And as I said, if it's from the devil, is there truth to it? And if there is, then go to God and say, yes, I am accused of this. And yet, God, I know that when I confess my sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And so, yes, I did feel condemned, but I understand how to resolve that condemnation. But what if that condemnation comes from God, from the Holy Spirit? Then I would say that your response needs to be, do something about it. Bow the knee to Jesus. Give your life to him, because if you don't, that condemnation will stay. For almost a year after David had slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, he remained silent. And Psalm 32 tells us that during that year, he says, my bones were in anguish. I want to die, literally, is what he's saying. There's every part of me. I love nothing about life. I want to just die. Why? Because he sat under a spirit of condemnation until he gave that sin back to God. So does your heart condemn you this morning? Based on the reason for that condemnation, work on it. Change it. Ask God to help you or give whatever you're holding back back to God so that he can take care of it. Number two, we must observe the confident heart. The confident heart. If we live lives of condemnation, how can we be confident? How can we be assured that we are in the truth? When we are feeling condemned and there's truth to the one who is sinning and feels condemned, how can a Christian like me do the sinful things that I do? How can I be saved? The answer to that question is found In verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, he stops and he then says, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now there are two ways to view this. For the first probably 1,600 years of Christianity, the thought was that this was a negative thought. Guys like Luther and Calvin and and others had this thinking that what this meant was is that beware because God knows you better than you know yourself and he's coming to get you. He's coming after you. So you better not hide anything because he knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doing in private. And yet it seems that as more modern commentaries and scholars have looked at this, they've brought back in, which I believe is correct, the understanding of what the whole passage is about. It's about assurance. It's John taking a hiatus and saying, all right, I've been really wailing on you about the need for obedience. Now I want to love you with assurance. And so why would God then say in his writing to us, 
that be assured you're in the faith. I love you, but understand I'm greater than you, and I know what you're thinking. I see it. I know it. And I'm coming to get you. It just doesn't seem like it works. And so what do we do with that passage of Scripture? I align with guys like John Stodd and, and others who say that this is the great assurance of the faith. And what that means is, though we feel condemned, though we sin, our assurance is not found in our meriting eternal life, but it is found that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, murderers, haters, idolaters, adulterers, liars, thieves, all of those things, and we could go down the litany of sins, that God knows our heart. And he knows who are his. And so today you find yourself struggling with sin. And you feel that tense feeling uh, that your confidence is taken away from you. And you feel condemned. And what God is wanting us to know is that I know the intentions and desire of your heart. I know how you've sinned against me. I know all of the things that you've done in your life. But I want you to know my child the following Learn how great the love the Father has lavished on you, that he would call you children of God. No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much you've failed, no matter how much you've struggled, no matter how many times doubt has come in your mind, God loves you, and you are his. And you can be assured of that. You can be encouraged by that. Now, how do we uh, receive this confidence? Write this down. How do we receive this confidence? It comes, I believe, through three things. First of all, the Word of God. It comes, first of all, from the Word of God. When I was a little Awana boy, just as we finished Awana, I learned very quickly uh, the key verse of Awana is 2 Timothy 2.15. I learned it in the King James Version, a little different than uh, the NIV, and so I, I don't even like to look at the NIV because it mixes me up. But the King James Version says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed because he's rightly dividing the word of truth. Now you say, what does that mean? The way we receive this confidence is by studying the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved. If you're approved, God has put His stamp of approval on us. And with approval comes what? Assurance. And so you want to know if you have assurance? You have to be in the Word of God. How do I know that I am approved unto God? I know it by studying His Word by knowing who he is, by understanding how he interacted with people like me. That's why I love that Jesus so many, or uh, sorry, that God's word so many times uses stories of people. Not just pragmatic propositions, but stories of regular people who doubted, who sinned big sins, and yet you see the love of God. I'm so glad that the children of Israel were a bunch of rebellious children. Because that resonates with a rebellious kid. Because God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've bought you. You are mine. And nothing can separate you from my love. Next, the work of Christ. 
How do we have confidence? We look to the work of Christ. Turn in your Bibles, if you're in 1 John, to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. We studied uh, probably four years ago this uh, whole chapter of Romans. It's one of my most favorite of all chapters in the Bible. And we learn something about this confidence that can come because of what Christ has done for us. Notice what he says in the first uh, verses, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no, help me out, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? What that means is is that we no longer have to be condemned, but we can be confident. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I own. Sin had left a crimson stain, and Jesus washed it white as snow. He's taken care of it. All my sins and all the things that condemn me, Jesus put them on the cross, and he made a public spectacle of all those who tried to tempt and try to lure me into that. He says, I'm going to destroy this power over Tim by the work of my son, Jesus Christ. This is what John says just for a moment in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also those of the whole world. He paid the penalty. And he did it, and that's where our confidence comes. It doesn't come in our trying to live upright and holy lives, but it comes on Jesus' cross. We cling to that cross of Calvary. Stay in Romans chapter 8 and write this in your outlines. The witness of the Spirit. The witness of the Spirit. Notice what the text tells us in verses 12 through 17. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation not to the sinful nature, but to live according to it, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies that we are I'm sorry, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. I'm going to speak about this in a moment, but understand this. The way that we uh, receive this is by living by the Spirit. And so Christ has done this work, and yes, you are saved, 
but it's being lived out. This confidence is being lived out as you're being led by the Spirit. As you go to your God, not in, in, in a concern of what your, uh, this evil dictator is going to do, but what your loving Father is going to respond to you. He is the one that gives us assurance of a right standing with God. Even in our times of disobedience, the Spirit says, Hey, don't do those things. They're contrary to that which lives inside of you. Now, now that we understand how we receive it through the Word of God and the work of Christ and the witness of the Spirit, understand that the only way that we can live in ongoing confidence, my friends, is to live according to the principles and commands that are laid forth in Scripture. To live out the message that we've heard from the beginning that John speaks about. To live and walk as Jesus did. To show the love of Christ. You cannot have confidence in your walk with God if you're not living out the life of the Spirit. That's where confidence comes. But what are the results? We've seen how we receive it, but what are the results? The results are threefold. Number one, there's access to God. Go back to our text, 1 John chapter 3. And notice verse 19 and then jump down to verse 21. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And notice what he says. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. He goes on to say in verse 21, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What does that mean? What that means is we have all access to God. And that access isn't something that we walk in uh, unsure of who we are, but we walk in with confidence that we are in the place that God has called us to and allows us to be a part of. Now, what that leads us back to, notice in verse 228, he speaks about this confidence. And he says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So what that means is that we're living differently when we live confident lives there's this confidence because we no longer are condemned that we have access to God and what that means is that either uh, in our present form now as we pray we can approach the throne of grace with confidence knowing that we will receive grace in our hour of need but the greater thing is is not only that it's a present thing but it's a future thing because as a believer Now that there is no condemnation over me, now that the power of sin and death has been taken from Timbadal because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus Christ comes, I can be confident and unashamed at his coming. That I can say, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come soon. Because I'm waiting and I'm watching for your return. There's a sense of confidence an access that is far different. But what that means is it means the idea of abiding. It means remaining and staying close to. As a caterer, many times I'm a part of events where uh, famous people are. And as a result of that, I I get a bird's eye view of some of the things that uh, other people don't. As a caterer, I've met some pretty famous people long before she was Hannah Montana. I met Miley Cyrus because I was catering for her dad at a concert. Now, I didn't have, while I had access, I didn't have all that much access because I didn't know her. I didn't know them. And yet what God is saying, this isn't backstage passes. 
This isn't uh, that you're in the skybox with someone famous. But this is an ongoing relationship. And so if you want confidence, if you want access in your prayer life, if you want confidence and access to God on the day that he comes, it starts today living like he did. Walking as he did. Living in light of the message that we've heard from the beginning. That's how we get access to God. Notice the next thing. Answered prayer. Answered prayer. Verse 21 and 22. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now, before we assume some things that scripture don't say regarding, it doesn't say regarding this subject, we must remember that answered prayers only happen when our hearts are right with God. The book of James says that the prayers of a righteous man are what will avail much, are effective. And so they bring up the story of Elijah, who was a righteous man who who prayed fervently that it would not rain, and it did not rain for some time. So understand this, you cannot believe that God is going to answer your prayers if you don't live lives of confidence. How can you be confident in your prayer life that God is going to answer those prayers if you're not confident in who you are in Jesus Christ? And some of us kind of just throw out a wing and a prayer, if you will, and say, if, if you're out there, God, I, I could really use your help. Lord, if, it, if you have the power that you say you do, then maybe you'll help me pass my test. And usually the people that don't see prayer answered in their life are the ones who pray 911 prayers all the time. That the only thing you got on your speed dial is 911 to God, and that is, I'm in this emergency, God, and, and if you can help me out, go ahead and help me out with it. But the one who resides in an ongoing relationship, living for Christ, who is righteous, is going to pray differently. Why? Because they will pray according to the will of God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we start living out the Lord's prayer in our life, we will start praying according to God's will. Not saying my will be done. Don't do this for me, God. But I pray because you desire these things. I want to agree with you that I want to see these things happen. And so we pray for the Lordship of Christ and Christ's kingdom and will to be done. And God says, that will be answered. I promise it. Finally, notice what he goes on in verse 22 to say, you want to pray and receive from him what you ask? Then make sure you obey his commands, verse 22 says, and you do what pleases him. It's amazing. If you do those two things, you'll live lives of confidence. You won't be condemned. I don't know a time in my life where I have been condemned because I have done right. Think about it. You've served somebody. You've shown love to somebody. Have you ever sensed a feeling of condemnation or grief as a result of it? Usually not the case. And so if we were to just do what pleases God and obey his commands, not only will we see access uh, to God and answered prayer, But we will get the final thing, and that's affirmation of the Spirit's leading. You start obeying God's command. You start doing what he 
tells us to and what pleases him. And notice what verse 24 will say as it closes this passage out. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gives us. I tell you this, when you start doing what God says, and you start pleasing God, and you can see a long cycle of that, a life that is devoted to those things, that is one of the greatest assurances that you can have. Because let me tell you something. You can profess Christ. And one of the reasons, and I know, and I get letters every once in a while, people say, Tim, why don't you give altar calls? Altar calls give a false sense of, uh, of assurance. Because anybody can say, Jesus, I love you. Anybody after a nice service and a, and a, a tear-jerking hymn can get up and say, yes, Jesus, I love you. But the Bible says many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. There's a lot of us that have gotten up and have said these things, but let me tell you something. You show me a life that loves Jesus and obeys his commands and does what pleases him, and I will show you every time a child of God. Why? Because the natural sinful man will not do those things. The Bible says that even the demons know that Jesus is God, and they shudder at the fact, but they do not please God and do as he commands. And that's the difference between a false faith and a real one. So you want to have confidence? It involves the committed heart. It involves a committed heart. You don't want to be condemned you want to live with confidence. You want to know without any question in your mind that Jesus is yours and you are his. Then it starts with a commitment. Notice verse 23. And this is the command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This committed heart, first of all, involves the right beliefs. It involves the right beliefs. It begins by you trusting Jesus Christ as your savior. By believing the gospel of the apostles, that Jesus Christ is God. That he came into this world to seek and to save you, that which was lost. And he did so by coming in the flesh to become like us. And that in all that he did, in all that he said, in all that he was a part of, there was no sin to be found in him so that he could die on the cross for you. One man, righteous, dying for another man, sinful. And by him being the substitute for your sin and dying on the cross and you trusting in him, saying, Jesus, I believe all that God's word says about you, that you are not just God, but you are man, that you came to this earth to change the world by dying on the cross for people like me. And I take that, Jesus, and that cross that you bore for me, and I receive it if you are willing. And you say you're willing, so I with confidence, put my faith and trust that because I put my trust in you and who you are and what your word says about who you say you are, then I can know that you love the world, that you sent your son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the right belief. But notice it involves the right behavior. Notice verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. He says not only is this his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, but to love one another. 
to love one another as he's commanded. It involves the right behavior. And some of us, quite frankly, know the right beliefs. You've heard me say over and over again, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand that that belief must also be followed up. For it to be a true belief, a true faith, it must find itself living itself out in action. You say, Tim, that sounds like a a salvation by works. No, it is a biblical salvation that James talks about in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. You can't just profess this Jesus and not live like it. I love what John says. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet live in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You can't claim one thing and live another way. So brothers and sisters, you want to have confidence that you will stand before God and you will be saved? You want to have confidence that you're on the right path? Then it begins and it ends with following the commands of God, living lives of obedience and doing what pleases him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this text. And Lord, I pray, as I prayed earlier this morning, that we would be people who are assured that we are your children, if in fact we are your children. And so, Lord, I pray a special blessing on every child of yours in this place. I don't know who they are, for only you know the deep thoughts and hearts of men and women. And, Lord, though I may be confused and I may find myself tricked by by others, you're not tricked, you're not confused. You know who are yours. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would give those of yours great assurance. Oh Lord, that they would know, not because they've prayed something, or because they've attended a church, or because they've been baptized or take communion, but that they would know because of the life of commitment that they live, that they wake up each and every day and say, Lord, I want to do what pleases you. And I'll fail at it, Lord, but I'm going to get back up and I'm going to seek forgiveness and I'm going to try it again because I want to be like you. And so, Lord, I pray for that assurance for your children. But, Lord, I pray even more that those that don't have that assurance, don't have that confidence, Lord, would first ask the question, do I have the life? Do I have Jesus? And, Lord, before they leave this place, they would come and talk with me, Pastor Keith, uh, Pastor Scott, or or any of the elders, or or any of those sitting around them, and would say, can you help me get some confidence this morning? Because I feel pretty condemned right now. Oh, Lord, we know that we pass from death to life, not because of the righteous things we do, but because of your mercy, and how lovely it is to know that mercy came running after a sinner like me. Lord, I pray that there would be one in this place today who would see that mercy coming and would embrace it and make it their own. 